Well, all of us, I suspect, enjoy a happy ending. Two weeks past Friday, a number of us saw just that at the Seniors Film Night with the 1955 film Oklahoma being shown. A number of you were there that night, but for those of you that weren't, it's worth saying that all the ingredients of a happy ending were present. There was love. Silver tonsilled, dashing male hero Curly and pretty homely Laurie finally married. Their relationship had had its storms, love rivals, shyness creating misunderstandings between them, but love prevailed gloriously. There was redemption In the penultimate scene after a haystack fire, Curly was declared innocent by a merciful judge of killing his love rival, bad guy Judd. Boo. And there was hope in the penultimate song, Oklahoma. Curly expressed hope that in his territory, the soon-to-be-formed member of the Union, Oklahoma, He'd soon be living in a brand new state, and that was going to be great. A place where there was going to be plenty of air, plenty of room, plenty of heart, and plenty of hope. And in the final scene, as Curly and Laurie left the homestead via their honeymoon for a future together, there was the sense that all was well that nothing could now get in the way of fulfillment in the land, fulfillment in family, with an unseen force blessing their endeavours. There may well be future trials, after all, isn't that what life throws up? But they would be met together with joy and perseverance. As you can see, not a film at all suitable for a Christian audience. Well, today we tie up our horses in happy ending territory as we reach the end of our second series on Exodus. And if you are a stranger in town, let's get acquainted with the story so far. Don't worry, the Oklahoma references end pretty soon. (laughs) The big picture, of course, has been the escape of God's people from Egypt led by Moses and Aaron. They've been through the Red Sea and beyond into the desert in search of their own great state. We've heard how God provided for them through difficult times on the journey, both in food and through the Ten Commandments, giving them ways to live and laws to obey. But as Moses received the law from God on Mount Sinai, we heard how the people became restless and impatient. They built an alternative idol, a golden calf, and broke the very commandments to which they just signed up. God was angry, but gave them a second chance. The people became contrite, but unsure of how to restore their relationship with God. And part of the answer was in the building of a tabernacle, or great tent. And two weeks ago at this service, Philip described how the design of the tabernacle would achieve a couple of things. How it would create a holy space 
within which God could come amongst his people and yet remain separate from their sinful natures. And second, how he could then journey with them and help guide them towards a safe arrival in the promised land. So, today, we begin with, I think, three things present at that moment in time at the end of Exodus. Firstly, a loving relationship between God and his people back on an even keel. Second, a tabernacle which has been constructed faithfully and obediently as a place of atonement for sin. And third, a destination in mind that promises much. It sounds a bit like love, redemption and hope. And so God moves in with his people and they continue their journey, not in a surrey with a fringe on top, but alongside a tabernacle, a holy space of God's design. So today, we'll refer to the passage that we just heard from Exodus, not the whole of the chapter, of course, where the finishing touches are made to the tabernacle, but the final five or so verses that Val's just read to us, 33 to 38. And we'll look at what makes this a happy ending to our Exodus journey. And then we'll place the story within the whole context of the Bible and see how it links with the story of Jesus. And you can follow that um, in the sermon handout that's available in the newsletter. So we begin with God in the tabernacle as a present guide. Well, I don't know about you, but when I go on holiday and arrive at a hotel, especially if it's somewhere nice and warm, I can't wait to get into the room, throw back the curtains, open up the balcony if there is one, walk out into the fresh air and get a feel of the place. And after that, I'll want to leave my bags in the room, have a walk around the hotel grounds and see who's there, what facilities there are, find places I might enjoy spending time over the next few days. And you know, I sense a little of the same type of excited urgency in those early verses, 33 and 34, where Moses has, in the final sentence of 33, put the finishing touches to the courtyard of the tabernacle, the altar, the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. To quote, And so Moses finished the work, then, meaning next, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I draw from that, that God was keen to move in as soon as it was ready and prepared. No delay, no prior engagement. God was among his people because he wanted to be as soon as he could. Now, of course, God didn't move in in precisely the way that you or I might. But he was present in the cloud that descended on the tabernacle. His glory filled it. Now, glory is a big idea to get our heads around. And it can be helpful to have something to hold on to as we navigate its meaning. And to me, I've found a couple of things helpful. I think of glory as something that is present and something that can be experienced. In other words, something real. And second, I think of it as something 
famous and brilliant. In its divine sense, the glory of God as something that would bring us to our knees, actually or metaphorically. So we can assume that the visual image that we might have of a cloud descending, you know, a sorry grey December cloud, is woefully inadequate in imagining the glory of God at that time. But if we picture a cloud descending and filling the tabernacle as something real, something present, something famous, something brilliant, something that brings us to our knees, then we might get a better idea. This week, my son Tom and I will, God willing, visit Chatsworth House in Derbyshire. Probably a number of you have been there. It's very much, for those that haven't, like Derbyshire Dale's version of Buckingham Palace. You can see the house from miles away. Indeed, like other great houses, it seems almost like the landscape was made for it rather than the other way round. And inside that great house is a collection of art, furniture, staterooms, the dining table set for Queen Victoria, the chapel that is quite staggering. And outside are 105 acres of landscape gardens and connecting those two worlds, the outside and the inside, is the grandest of front doors beside a weeping ash. The front door symbolizes worlds that are separate yet connected. The front door would only be open to Moses when the cloud was not settled upon the tabernacle, we're told in verse 35. Rather like Chatsworth House opening hours, at times it was a private residence for the equivalent for, for the Duke of Devonshire and at other times open to the public. As Philip described it a fortnight ago, God was both among his people but separate from them. The physical manifestations of separateness in the tabernacle, not a front door, but curtains around the holy place and the courtyard of the tabernacle and rules of entry. Manifestations of separateness, but also physical manifestations of God's presence. His word enshrined in the ark the altar, the tabernacle itself, and the cloud that descended upon it, bringing his glory. And those two things, that separateness and that togetherness, connected through systems of ritual cleansing, sacrifice and offering, holiness of approach. God was among his people. He was there because he wanted to be. And he was separate, yet connected. And during the journey that the people of Israel had with God, there would be times for sacrifice and keeping right with God and times for setting out on the next leg of the journey. And the sign would be the cloud of God lifting. When it lifted, they'd set out, but not before. Every January, we here have our church vision Sunday, don't we? It's a chance to look back at God's activity amongst us and look forward to some of the things that we believe he might have for us in the next 12 months. It's a summary almost of the guidance that we've received from him so far, and Philip will speak to that theme in 
January. And post our Christmas time of celebration and reflection in Advent, it's a little bit like our time of setting out on the next leg of our journey with God. Trying to interpret his guidance, put deep, putting detail on the plans, seeking to act obediently. A time of setting out. Not something we'd want to attempt under a cloud, perhaps, but when we find that God is urging us on. And the people of Israel look to God, I think, in a similar way, seeking his rhythm in their journey. Times to collect themselves, times to times of repentance, were followed by times of setting out. It's no coincidence that the seasons of church life follow a biblical pattern like that and have done so over time. God was among his people. He wanted to be, he was separate from them, yet connected to them. And he indicated the rhythm of sacrifice and setting out. And the final verse of Exodus tells us that the cloud and fire of God were to quote, in the sight of all the house of Israel during their travels. In the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. That is our happy ending brought to a conclusion. It's a story of God who has been faithful to his people and is now with them for the foreseeable future, in evidence and at work in their sight. What a blessing that must have been for them, that the journey they were undertaking was made alongside God, guiding, accompanying, sharing. It seems to me a journey that's made with another person is nearly always a better one. I mildly dread long car journeys spent alone. I get distracted, more anxious, feel more vulnerable, more likely to get lost, get tired more quickly, somewhat rootless. A companion, and of course it always has to be the right companion, can change all of that. Anxiety can be calmed. Vulnerability can be talked about. Feeling lost, well, two heads are usually better than one. Tiredness overcome by sharing the load. God's accompaniment of his people met all of those conditions and many, many more. They had in him, you see, the provider, the guide, the righteous judge, the merciful one, and the challenger. God was among his people, a perfect companion. And we begin... Now to turn to the second part of my short talk this morning, which is to look forward to how God revealed his glory in a new and different way. A personal saviour. Well, reverting back to Oklahoma for a moment, we don't know exactly how happy a life Curly and Laurie ended up having together. We can imagine We do know that Oklahoma became a state and became less known for its potatoes than for its oil and that racial tensions nearly subsumed it in the 1920s and beyond. We do know that the people of Israel, with God alongside them, made it to the promised land and that God remained faithful. 
The rest of that story is for another day, another series, and I can't pack 1,500 years of Old Testament history into 15 seconds, but there are a few relevant patterns that occurred in the remainder of that time. The people lost their land God had given them and were exiled. Their leaders proved inconsistent in living out the covenant made with Moses and God. The temple, which was later to be a kind of permanent tabernacle in Jerusalem, was destroyed. And the presence of God increasingly became known as the rule of religious law rather than the gift of a gracious God. Now, God could have responded to those Old Testament developments in a number of ways. But we know that his response was to be with his people in a different way and all over again. By becoming one of them, one of us, and bringing his glory to us in human form, in Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior. How many of us, when we're repeatedly rejected by someone or been willfully misinterpreted and worse, would respond by wanting to get closer to them and bear their problems. It's tempting in those sorts of situations to walk away and let people receive their comeuppance, is it not? That is not God's way. The Father's love shines through that Jesus would come in skin and bone God's desire for a happy ending had not gone away. What I wonder is our version of a happy ending. We all might have ideas of what that would be for us. Dreams of health, family, home, adventure, contentment, achievement. Looking back on a life well lived or looking forward even to a life full of possibility still. Ministry puts me and other colleagues in the privileged position of getting close to people's ideas and dreams. And they often are held alongside disappointments, mistakes, grief, and relationship difficulties. And yet when I look at those things from a Christian perspective and see those walking with Jesus Christ, I can see sometimes that we seem to walk a little lighter that those carrying a heavy load have others with whom they can share that load. That those who realize their own weaknesses and sinfulness may have a humbler heart. And those who put others before themselves are more likely to change things for the better. Those who have recognized the need for a personal savior and have found him in Jesus Christ know his glory. The glory, experiencing him as something real and as a brilliant light. The glory which changes lives. And Hebrews 9, our second reading, looked at how God's work in Jesus transcended the requirements of the tabernacle. That Jesus opened a new door and ripped back the curtain to heaven and appears for us in God's presence. That Jesus no longer makes that regular Routine of sacrifice for sin to appease an angry God, but has done away with the stain of all sin by his own sacrifice. 
And whilst he has once been sacrificed, he will come again in future appearance to bring the faithful to salvation. At the end of this service, it can be lovely in the summer months to open up the church's front doors as we're leaving without getting freezing cold as we would today, but instead to feel as we have felt a balmy breeze or just enjoy the warmth of the weather outside. On those days, we often get a few wedges, don't we, and jam those doors open. It's better that way. There's room for people to come in and out. The church and the world outside are no longer separated, but somehow connected. And the warmth of the welcome inside can transmit to the outside. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, the door to heaven was wedged open. People on the outside, sinners though we be, can walk in. The warmth of the welcome inside can be more deeply felt. And yet, however wide and however permanently he's wedged that door open, we still sometimes hover on the threshold or go away and take another look later. I did that for a a number of years and I talk to people all the time who cannot walk over the threshold. Yet my experience is also that once that step is taken and we can call ourselves and live as a follower of Jesus, then we may still take steps forwards and backwards, but the threshold has been crossed once and for all. And I think once that's happened, or we have somehow experienced the glory of of the Lord as something real and dazzling, that's not something that can be reversed. We've greeted a new dawn in our lives and see the potential for the happy ending. Now today, just to wrap up, you may stand on the far side of the threshold and wonder whether to take any step forward or simply to come back later and have another look. I hope this Christmas you might get the chance to think about that idea in a new way. That God is with us in a glorious and saving way through the baby Jesus. Or you may have crossed the threshold already but have not fully experienced God's glory. You can't quite see it, know it, or feel it. And I urge you to put yourself in the right places and with the right people at the right time. You probably know what I mean by that. Or you may have crossed the threshold and know your Saviour. Then give thanks and share him with others this Christmas. Help others towards the threshold of experiencing God's glory. Well, we're now going to reflect on God's glory, the glory that I've spoken about, that thing which is real and dazzling.